Well, in a door-to-door -door sales job that I had where I broke records by making two sales in my first day and then working another half day and quitting, I had a conversation with my manager at the time about faith. And he uh, was not particularly interested in Christianity, but he was uh, into, as was in vogue back then, Buddhism. After all, he said, the Dalai Lama says that ultimately in life, you should do what makes you happy. Now, I imagine that he was quoting the Dalai Lama correctly uh, because his website, yes, the Dalai Lama has a website, uh, states that his first priority is encouraging people to be happy. And he does that by advocating the cultivation of warm-heartedness and human values such as compassion, forgiveness, tolerance, contentment, and self-discipline. After all, he says, human beings are all the same. We all want happiness and do not want suffering. On his Instagram account, yes, he has one of those too. One commenter posted on a recent picture from just a couple of weeks ago, best leader in the world. Let me ask you a question this morning. What does a Christ-like leader look like? What does a Christ-like leader look like? Obviously, the example of the Dalai Lama that I've just given couldn't possibly be one of somebody who is a Christ-like leader. He doesn't even follow Christ. He's not a Christian. And yet, how many self-professed Christians would agree with his statement that we all want happiness and do not want suffering? Would you agree with that statement? And not just agree with it, but think that actually that's something that we should be pursuing? What if I put those words in a famous Christian teacher's mouth, like Beth Moore or Brian Houston? What if I put those words in my mouth? How would you respond? What are the marks? What are the evidences? What are the indicators of a Christ-like leader? Well, that is the main concern of our passage here this morning. And I have three answers that this passage has for that question. What does a Christ-like leader look like? And so with your Bibles open uh, and following along, you are welcome to use our blue Bibles or uh, you can even take that home if you don't have one. I believe we're on page 555. And following along as we dive into it, let's discover what this passage has to say about Christ-like leaders. Firstly, Christ-like leaders refuse the world. Christ-like leaders refuse the world. Paul begins this section by describing what the apostles are. And uh, this may seem like Paul's repeating himself. And for those who have been around for the last couple of weeks, as you've been meditating on these passages, as we've been preaching through them, I'm sure that you will have noticed that there are some similar themes in this passage that we've just read to, to what we've already read in 1 Corinthians. But that in itself is worth us thinking about, isn't it? 
I mean, obviously, uh, we've been preaching through this letter as a section at a time. The Corinthians would have just heard it all at once. But despite that, it's worth us asking ourselves, why has God chosen to emphasize these points repeatedly to us at the beginning of this letter? You know, if this book is really God's Word, which we believe it is, this indicates that this is something that we cannot miss. Uh, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to hit chapter 5, and from chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians, the direction of this letter is going to take a, a completely different change. <laughs> Paul is going to apply the things that he has been talking about in, the intro, in these first few chapters to specific situations in the Corinthian church. And so before we embark on those really fun and really interesting and headachey applications and topics, we will once again reflect on the importance of godly and Christ-like leadership. And so with that in mind, knowing how important it is, let's come again to the beginning of our passage in verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Hot on the heels of saying, you remember last week, that we are gods and God owns everything and we therefore don't belong to anyone or anything else. Then Paul in our passage now goes on to say what the apostles are. And now when I say apostles, uh, I'm using the term in the sense of one who has been sent to preach the gospel. Uh, we're not talking about the capital A apostle, meaning one of the 12 that Jesus set apart, uh, or Paul himself. That's why po Apollos can be included in this, this description when Paul says uh, how one should regard us. And he's just spoken about Apollos and himself and Cephas. Paul begins by shifting to yet another metaphor. You remember we've heard him already talk about these workers as, uh, as uh, workers in the field and as builders of the building. Well, now he has moved to a metaphor of talking about servants and stewards. Now, servant is a term that we've already seen in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. And Paul adds to that that the apostles are also stewards. And a steward is somebody who has been given a responsibility and a task by a master. So the Comptons, a family in our church, have been the stewards of the house and the dog of the Cowans while they've been in Perth, another family in our church. They've been tasked with looking after their house and their dog. And if the Cowans were their masters, which I'm pretty sure they're not, then you have some sense of this idea of steward that Paul is talking about. And so Paul is saying that these, the apostles are servants of Christ and they are stewards. Well, what are they stewards of? What is the responsibility, the task that God has given them to be responsible for? Well, verse 1 says, the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God. What does it mean that they are stewards of the mysteries of God? Well, just to be clear, what this doesn't mean, Paul's not referring to some kind of secret esoteric knowledge uh, that only the apostles have access to. Sadly, this is yet another example of a verse that is so often taken out of context to mean that people can have this secret Christian wisdom when you reach the higher echelons of spirituality. You may remember, we've, we've talked about that already from chapter 2. 
No, that's not what he's talking about. Children, it's important for you to know that when we speak of the mystery of God, it's something that you can understand. It's not something that is out of reach for you. Because the mystery is the good news of the gospel. Whenever you hear that each week in Praise Factory, that is what the Bible is referring to when it speaks of mystery, the good news of the gospel. You see, whenever Paul uses this term mystery, uh, most often he's referring to the good news, God's plan of salvation that has become revealed, that is now clear in Christ's life, death and resurrection. This is especially obvious in the book of Ephesians where Paul uses the term many times, but it's also clear throughout the rest of his writing that this is what he's referring to. And we uh, have already seen it actually in 1 Corinthians 2.17, but you may have missed it. Ironically, it may have been hidden to you because in the English it is translated as hidden, even though that is the same word that Paul uses here when he refers to mysteries. And so as stewards, Paul says, as those entrusted with the message of the gospel, in verse 2, he says that he and Apollos must be found faithful. Well, how do you ensure that you're faithful? You carry out the task that you have been assigned. So if the Cowans came home on Friday and found smashed windows uh, and mess everywhere and a dog who had not been fed in the last three weeks, which I'm pretty sure they didn't find, then the Comptons would not have been faithful in their stewardship. They would not have done what they were tasked to do. A faithful steward carries out the task their master has given them. In Paul and the Apostles' case, the right preaching of the gospel. And Paul then goes on to describe one key outworking of faithful stewardship in verses 3 to 5. Let's have a read of that together. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In these few verses, Paul contrasts the difference between being judged by people and being judged by God. It is a very small thing, he says, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself in that human court. And Paul is once again emphasizing the fact that it is God whose opinions matter the most. Just in case the Corinthians get the idea that, you know, perhaps this means Paul is being uncritical. He's like, ah, oh, who cares? I don't care whatever anybody says. I can do whatever I want. Well, he goes on in verse 4 to say that now, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. And the point of his, of his clarification is that he's saying, I don't just do whatever I like. I still think critically about whether I am ensuring that I am doing the right thing. I'm not intentionally trying to do something sinful or subversive or deceptive. I am, as far as I can tell, with the integrity of my own heart, 
with a clear conscience, I am seeking to be faithful to the Lord. And yet he's also saying that just because of that, just because that's where he is aware of, that doesn't mean that he is perfect. Because ultimately the Lord will judge. And this truth about the nature of people and the judgment of God is is what he elaborates on in the second half of verse 5. When the Lord comes, He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. So what Paul is applying to himself here is something that Christians have often spoken of as sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission, sins of commission. Sins of omission... Speaking of sins that we don't do intentionally. Sins that we have not uh, been aware of. This is spelled out explicitly in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 2. If anyone sins unintentionally. And Paul obviously famously describes this struggle with us in verse 7, in Romans 7. Believe it or not, there are sins that you are not even aware of, that you are committing. That's why Jesus told us to ask the Lord for forgiveness. And so because of this, therefore, Paul says in the start of verse 5, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Paul's telling the Corinthians, you don't know the things hidden in darkness. You don't know the purposes of each heart. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, you're probably not even aware of the sins in your own heart, let alone mine. And so because you are not God, don't presume that you can pronounce judgment on me or on any of the other apostles about our ministry. God will ultimately judge And he will ultimately commend faithful stewards. Once again, this could easily be taken out of context. It could be uh, used as yet another verse in the arsenal of Christians shouldn't judge weaponry. Perhaps you've read that and wondered that yourself. Is that what that means? But knowing the context will help you realize that Paul is not saying, do not pronounce any judgment on anyone ever under any circumstance. Remember, this is the church that is boasting about their favorite teachers. They're saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And some are saying, Paul, uh, he's the inferior apostle. He's not as good. And Paul is replying with, no, you have no idea. You're trying to judge me thinking that you have authority to judge. You don't. God alone has that. Now, I hope that you can see that this is an entirely different thing to keeping your pastors and teachers accountable to the teaching of the Bible. It's a very different kind of judgment. The difference is that if I, as your pastor, or any of our pastors, start to preach a gospel message that is something other than the true biblical gospel, then you actually have a duty as a church to get rid of me. Even though you've just agreed to start paying me. If that is the case, you've been stewarded with the responsibility by God to discipline me and if necessary, remove me. Because the Bible says too much about false teachers for us to ignore 
that responsibility. And so with all that in mind, how do you recognize a Christ-like pastor? Well, he's one who has no problem saying what I just said. Because he recognizes that his commendation comes not from people, but from God. And it is a far more terrifying thing to receive judgment from God than judgment from people. To be tried in the courts of public opinion is trivial compared to being tried in the courts of God. Because a Christ-like leader, as far as he is able, with all his strength, as much as he is aware and can do in his own conscience, refuses the world. He refuses to hold on to his reputation at any cost. He refuses to buy into the world's wisdom. He refuses the temptation to seek worldly power by rubbing shoulders with powerful people. He refuses to let the praise of people overtake the final praise of God. What do you look for in a leader? Do you wish that our elders were more cool or more conversant with culture or had better managerial skills? I mean, I wish we had better managerial (laughs) skills. What about the teachers that you listen to or that you read the books of? What about the teachers that have influenced you over your life? Do they post sermons online or have Twitter accounts, you know, because they're looking for kudos or fame? The Christ-like leader seeks to please only one. He seeks only the commendation of his master. And the more you get to know a, a leader, a teacher, somebody who claims to be speaking on behalf of God, the more you hear them, the more you watch their lives, then this becomes more and more evident. And the things that it looks like are giving praise to others more than themselves. It looks like a recognition that the God that they worship is far cleverer than they'll ever be. It looks like godly character being displayed in how they live. And it looks like unflinching fearlessness in declaring the truth of God's Word. The Christ-like leader refuses the world and all of its counterfeit gold because he knows his commendation comes only from him. Well, what else does this passage teach us about the Christ-like leader? Secondly, Christ-like leaders refer to the Word. Paul goes on in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. 
Now, when I say refer, I, I don't mean in the sense that, you know, they bring up the Bible. We, we talk about it. I'm referring to the Bible when they are in conversational teaching. No, I say refer in the legal sense where uh, a matter is referred to a higher court. That is, something that might be disputed is taken to a higher authority in order for that to be sorted out. And here we see Paul saying that there is no higher authority than the Word. And that is the authority that the Christ-like leader always refers to. Paul now addresses the entire church directly by saying brothers, and as you remember, brothers means everyone, including sisters. And he tells them that he's applied all these things. That is, everything that he's said about leadership, about uh, the the workers, the builders, from the beginning of chapter 3. He's applied all of that to himself and to Apollos. He's applied this spiritual truth, these eternal realities that the Lord has revealed to him, to his own and to Apollos' ministry. And for what purpose? That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now, in the original Greek, this is a, this is a confusing sentence. Uh, to translate it literally would be something like, in order that you may learn in us the not beyond what is written. Sounds a bit like the first draft of my sermons. <laughs> many, many people have tried to untangle the web of syntactical and grammatical confusion uh, that Paul has woven here in this sentence, but I think the ESV has actually translated well what Paul is likely trying to get at. The Greek verb gegrapte that Paul uses in this verse to refer to what is written, he uses 30 other times in his letters, and every single one of those times he uses that word, uh, he's introducing a citation from the Old Testament. It is written, Old Testament quote, except for Galatians 4.22, where he's speaking of a truth from the Old Testament. Every instance, every time he uses that word, that is what he's referring to. Similarly, the New Testament uses gegrapte the vast majority of times to either cite scripture or to talk about truth in scripture. Jesus does the same. And so it is most likely that Paul here is talking about the Old, Tes- the Old Testament and more likely still that he's referring to the Old Testament that he has quoted so far in this letter. I'll uh, put them up on the screen for you, the, the quotations so far in 1 Corinthians. So you can see them all, even though it's... Hey, that's not too bad. Do you notice the theme in them? I've underlined certain uh, key lines It's the same thing that Paul's been banging on about the entire time. God's wisdom far exceeds man's wisdom. God's wisdom far exceeds the wisdom of humans. To not not go beyond what is written is to understand that God's wisdom far exceeds our own. To know that wisdom comes from the Word. And this makes total sense of Paul's next sentence in our passage. Have a look at the second half of verse 6. That none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. I've applied these things to us, that you may not go beyond what is written, that you may not be puffed up in favour of one against the other. The reason has applied these things is so that by their example, the Corinthians might learn that a teacher 
must not base his wisdom on something else, and that as a result of that, as a result of humbling themselves before him and his word, not being puffed up in favor of one against the other, not boasting in other teachers. And so if your teachers, if the people that you listen to who are teaching you the word aren't simply helping you understand scripture and then helping you figure out how to live that out in life, then you are wasting your time. That goes for me, that goes for any of our elders, that goes for any of our praise factory teachers, that goes for anyone who teaches scripture in our church. And it goes for any other teachers that you might listen to or read, whether that's in a sermon on YouTube, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a blog, whether it's a book, an article, anything. A Christ-like leader doesn't go beyond what is written. He refers authority to the Word. Now, there are some Christian teachers who have expertise in other areas and whose sole purpose isn't teaching Scripture. That's not the only thing that they do. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about anyone who is seeking to help you grow and mature in knowing God, in knowing His Word. And also, I'm not saying that every bit of teaching has to look like an expository sermon. Of course, you can teach the Bible topically. You can teach it systematically. That's why we read books. That's why we have Sunday school. No, don't confuse the format of the teaching with the substance of the teaching. And so when you're listening to or reading somebody who claims to be teaching you something about the Bible, the first question you need to be asking yourself is, where is the authority in what I am hearing or reading? Where is the authority located? Is the Bible the final court of appeal or is something else? Uh, illustrations, uh, quotes, funny stories, statistics, personal experiences, or engaging rhetoric? Are all of those things being used to serve the point of what is written in the text of the Bible? Or are those things making the point? I can't tell you how many times in my life I've heard the latter. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've believed the latter. And I have, sadly, preached the latter. And so I'm thankful that uh, as far as whenever I get the chance, I run my sermons through with people who are willing to listen. Just a few weeks ago, thankfully, I was prevented from doing that exact thing, making a point on something else. It's also why you always have free reign to lovingly correct me whenever I do it. Don't build an edifice of faith on something beyond what is written. Don't build an edifice of faith on something beyond what is written. Don't let authority come from a different source when it comes to knowing God, when it comes to understanding God, when it comes to living for God. When you evaluate a leader, when you evaluate a teacher, watch closely how they handle the word. Be charitable, of course, don't assume things too quickly, but ultimately keep asking this 
question. Because if they start to believe their own smarts and boast in worldly wisdom and think that they've got great ideas that they can share with everybody else, they will only move further and further away from God. They will eventually be puffed up with pride and start to believe that they are the high court of appeal, that because of my years of experience, I have things that you need to hear. Just as the Corinthians thought they were. Paul seeks to put a pin in their pride balloon by asking three pointed questions. Let's read those together in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Who, what, why? Three questions that make three clear points. Who sees anything different in you? Or another way of putting that would be, who do you think you are? What makes you think you're something special and gives you the right to pronounce God's judgment on us? What do you have that you did not receive? Paul drives the point further home by reminding them once again that all is of grace, that everything comes from the Lord, that we have not earned a single thing. A Christian is a person who is eternally grateful because they understand, as Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Everything, even our salvation, is a gift from God. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The clear implication of this truth, of knowing that grace is a gift from God, is that you can't boast in it. It's foolish to do so. And so with these three questions in verse 7, Paul hammers the point home to them so that he can pull out the sledgehammer. Which brings us to our final point and the rest of our passage. Christ-like leaders are the refuse of the world. Let's read from verse 8. I'm going to read through the whole passage, through to verse 13, so that we feel the full force of it. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
Now, just in case you think I've misinterpreted Paul's tone, take a peek at the next verse, which will be our first verse next week. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Yes, Paul loves and cares for them, but he obviously knew his words were going to make them feel ashamed. And for good reason. The whole purpose, the whole point of this section is that Paul is calling out the Corinthians for their apparent reign and being so-called kings now. Everything that Paul has said up until this point in the letter, everything about the wisdom of the cross and the folly of worldly wisdom, about the Corinthians' infantile faith, about teaching being faithful, teachers being faithful servants, about all of them being workers in God's field, about the fact that the field and the building belong to God, about builders making sure that they build with gold, silver, and precious stones, about leaders being stewards who will receive their commendation from God, about boasting in God and not boasting in men, everything Paul has said so far, all of that is behind this stunning rebuke, like a dozen carriages behind a freight train that is meant to make the Corinthians wake up and pay attention. Do you want your leaders to lead you into earthly reign or eternal reign? Because if you want to roll with the Corinthians, and if you want to be on the receiving end of this freight train rebuke, then tell your leaders that what you want to hear is that Jesus wants you to be happy and avoid suffering. Go and find leaders online and at Kurong who will tell you that you need more money, that it's okay to seek the praise and the recognition of people, that it's okay to pursue a career that comes before your faith. Is that the kind of leader that God wants? Is that the kind of leader that you want? What Paul goes on to talk about here is what some have termed the cruciform life. That is a life that is shaped by the cross. Cruciform, cross-shaped. A life that is shaped by the worldly foolishness and godly wisdom of the cross. The Corinthians didn't have that. They had a life shaped by the world. They wanted the praise and commendation from the world. They wanted the accolades and the prestige that came from earthly success. They wanted to reign. Which, of course, they didn't really. Paul calls that out in verse 8. Would that you did reign. <laughs> Showing that the reality of what they thought was far removed from how they perceived things. Here, Paul makes it crystal clear that the Christian life is the inverted life. 
The Christian life is the inverted life. The way up is down. To be first, you must be last. To gain your life, you must lose it. Paul's not complimenting them here. He's he's sarcastically contrasting him and Apollos with the Corinthians in verse 10. He's saying, we are fools. You are wise. We are weak. You are strong. Where you're honored, we're not. He's pointing out that the apostles are living a cruciform life, unlike the Corinthians. And they have made themselves last for the sake of the gospel. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, he says in verse 9, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Did you catch the epic scope of this theatre? World, angels, men. You know, this imagery that Paul is using here when he says that we are last is that of those who were condemned to die in a gladiatorial arena. If you've seen Gladiator, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, it's kind of easy to imagine. Just think of a huge arena of people and a section in the middle where everyone fights and kills each other. Paul is saying that he and the apostles are the last in a long line of captives trudging towards their death in the arena. And in the stands, he says, it's not just people, but the whole world and even heavenly beings. The universe is watching the spectacle as they lay down their lives and suffer the worst for the work of God that He has given them. To the present hour, he says in verse 11, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. Does that sound like a description of a pastor that you'll find on Preachers and Sneakers? If you're unfamiliar with that, that's an Instagram account that analyzes uh, celebrity pastors and figures out how much certain, you know, parts of their outfit cost. And it's usually a ridiculously expensive amount. Does this description sound like the kind of leader that the world is willing to rush to, to sit at the feet of and hear their great wisdom? You want to know what a Christ-like leader looks like? They're the ones who follow Jesus. When he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. A Christ-like leader follows Jesus into poverty, homelessness, and suffering. Now, I know there are good biblical reasons to reject what's sometimes called a poverty theology. You know, that is the belief that all Christians should be living in poverty. Right? That, that theology fails to read Scripture in its entirety. But do we perhaps move in that direction too quickly? Do we more readily justify our lives in the rich West 
in the promised land of Darwin before considering what material sacrifices the cruciform life actually calls us to? Have we ever asked ourselves, could it be that the reason I'm not experiencing any suffering is because my pursuit of Jesus hasn't cost me anything yet? When was the last time you looked at your budget and your spending and intentionally made sacrifices in it for the sake of the gospel? Now, don't hear me telling you off for this because it still amazes me that as a church of 20 people, we have enough to support me full-time and have extra to cover our expenses and to support missionaries. I I think our church already has a sacrificial, a generous culture, and for that I praise God. But I pray, I pray that we would never become complacent when it comes to money and material things. May we be a church that keeps talking about these things openly with one another and sees money for what it really is. Not something to be valued, but something to be stewarded for God's kingdom. Because worldly wisdom will always pull us in the other direction. It will lure us into treasuring material things that will one day rust, be eaten by moths, and fade away. And that's going to happen even quicker in Darwin. But being last isn't just about material sacrifice, is it? That's not the only component of it. What does the rest of this passage say? When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The Christ-like leader endures through persecution. They exhibit Christian character and the fruit of the Spirit when under immense pressure and they are ready to be the scum of the world. The scum and refuse here, those words refer to the stuff that comes off something really filthy when you've given it a good clean. While we were living with Hugh and Paige for a few months at the end of 2020, (laughs) Hugh kindly did a carpet shampoo of our kids' room, which I'm sure hadn't been done for years. I kid you not... (laughs) The stuff that he poured into the laundry sink after he had done that shampoo was not a pretty colour. It was revolting. That's the image here. The scum and the refuge. The things thrown onto the rubbish pile. You want to know where this wisdom of the cross ends up landing you? Do you want to know where this foolishness that the world thinks is just dumb gets you? Down the drain. In the gutter. On the trash heap. Reviled, persecuted, slandered. Seen by others as foolish for believing in fairy tales withheld from promotions at work for not accepting certain social agendas, opposed and stonewalled by others for trying to share the gospel. 
And yet all the while, responding by blessing others, enduring persecution, having the joy of Christ and pleading with them to turn to Jesus. Now tell me, given everything that Paul has said and the way that he's described the Corinthians compared to himself and the other apostles, which leader do you prefer? I mean, given what we've just read, I'm pretty sure everyone knows what the right answer is. But what's your answer? Aren't we all blind to our own hunger for worldly wisdom, to our own desire to reign and receive the good things in life now? Don't we all want to avoid persecution? We want somebody to tell us that that is what life should be about? To resist suffering? Then we all want leaders who are going to justify our sins, who are going to encourage us to get comfortable with our worldly comforts? Are we not just like the Corinthians? My friend, the gospel gives us hope. Without it, there is surely no way in the world that you and I would ever want the Christ-like leader. Without the gospel, without the glory of the cross, and the fact that on it Jesus received the right and just penalty of God's wrath for our sin, our hearts would always want temporal treasures. Without the good news that by God's grace, when you turn from your own sin, from loving this world, from worshipping false gods, and you put your faith in Jesus that He saves you. He declares you righteous before Him and gives you His Spirit. Without that news, surely you and I would never be interested in being the scum and the refuse of the world. When we look to the cross and when we see all that God has accomplished for us on it, when we turn to Him and have our hearts brought to life by His Spirit, then we gladly throw ourselves on the rubbish pile. Our gratitude for the grace that God has poured out to us on the cross will see us willingly become a spectacle to the whole cosmos for the glory of God and for the sake of others coming to know His salvation. That is the heart of a Christ-like leader. And a Christ-like leader will always desire your good. But your good is not, as the Dalai Lama says, that you should do whatever you need in order to be happy and to avoid suffering. 
That is not your ultimate good. Your ultimate good is the way of the cross, is the cruciform life. Do you want a leader like that? Pray that our elders, that our pastors would grow in Christ-likeness and be characterized by these marks of refusing the world, of referring to the word, and of being the refuse of the world. And ask yourself, if God answers that prayer, am I willing to follow? Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you because of your great wisdom. And Father, we confess that too easily and too often we prefer the world's wisdom. Lord, may we look to the cross. May we see what Christ has done on it. How he has taken our sin and offered us life. And may we be able to say, God, we will go anywhere that you take us. because of your great love and your great mercy. God, for our pastors, may they be ones who are ready and willing to lay down their lives for you. And may we as a church desire the cruciform life In Jesus' name, amen.